Hi, I'm Grant. And I'm Dave. And this is The Commentary Cast, a podcast bringing you missing commentaries and first-hand insights from the filmmakers behind the streaming content you love. In this week's episode, we talk to director Simon McCoy about his film, Mortal Kombat. Oh, Mortal Kombat, Dave. Are you going to do it or am I going to do it? I don't know what you're talking about, Grant. What, what, what are you talking about? Somebody has to go, Mortal Kombat! At the head of this podcast. I could have sworn that that was Super Grover for a second there. And I don't <laughs> believe he was in the original franchise. Can you, can you help me out when, when we post-produce this thing and put the actual Mortal Kombat scream over the top of this? I will 100% do that. He's shaking his head. He's shaking his head. Can you do it now, though? Just Because everybody really... As soon as you say the title Mortal Kombat, you hear it in your head screamed like the uh, the original movie back in 95 or whenever it was. Well, of course, if you haven't picked it up already, uh, you know, this is based on the incredibly popular video game franchise Mortal Kombat. Uh, it's actually a big, big part of my childhood, Dave. Oh, as it was of mine as well. I uh, I threw many uh, $1 coins down the arcade machine, the original arcade machine when I was in my early teens. Did you have a favorite character? Oh, I, oh wait, I, let me guess, let me guess, let me guess. I think you you could be a Sonya Blade kind of person. Uh, I think I'm going to have to own up and say Raiden. Oh, Raiden, yeah. Back, Raiden. back, forward, forward. Yeah. flying across the screen there uh, uh, it's indelibly imprinted in both your uh, yeah. brain and your fingers i can tell stay with me forever um and and so will today's conversation with director simon mccoy it's an incredible honor to get you know the director of such a massive movie franchise to come on the show and and be as open and honest as he was with us when we recorded this so I, i'm eager to to share that wisdom from simon through us to the world but before we do that could you tell everybody what the movie's about Okay, so hunted by the warrior Sub-Zero, MMA fighter Cole Young finds sanctuary at the temple of Lord Raiden. My favorite. Dave's favorite character. Training with experienced fighters and a rogue mercenary, Cole prepares to stand with Earth's greatest champions to battle enemies from Outworld. You did a good job, Dave, but I feel like the only way we're going to really capture just how epic this movie is, is to hear a snippet from the trailer. Throughout history, different cultures all over the world reference a great tournament of champions that dragon marking i think it's an invitation to fight for something known as mortal combat these are your champions i'm sonia that's kano I'm Liu Kang. Thanks, Jax. Kong Lao. Lord Raiden. The fate of Earth is in our hands. Get over here! Finish them! Kano wins. You fucking beauty. Alrighty, well, the film stars Hiroyuki Sonata as Scorpion, get over here, Joe tells him as Sub-Zero, and Louis Tan as our protagonist, Cole Young, alongside a host of all your fan favorite characters like Sonya Blade, Jax, Raiden, and Liu Kang. It also stars, Dave, the Australian city of Adelaide, 
which gives a wonderful performance as any town USA. Now, not to mention the wider state of South Australia, which also filled a variety of roles, including the, uh, you know, very, very, very otherworldly Outworld. Uh, this is actually Simon's first film, Dave, uh, but he's hardly a newcomer to the business of storytelling. Uh, game fans are likely very familiar with his widely seen and highly acclaimed commercial work, including ads for PlayStation, Call of Duty, and, and a really seminal, iconic campaign for Halo entitled Believe. Yeah, not to mention other huge brands like Samsung, HP, Nissan. Uh, this guy yeah, really knows what he's doing. Well, should we just dive right in? I'm ready to go. All right. Well, wait, wait, wait. We've got to do our little disclaimer for those that are new to the pod. Oh, sorry. I'm just too excited. Well, Grant and this week's guest are going to be having a conversation while watching the film. And if you listen for the cue to hit play, you can watch along too, or just listen at your own leisure. All right. Now I'm ready to hit play. Hit start, okay. Dave. Let's All do right. this thing. Let's test it. my might. Simon McCoy, thank you so much for joining us today on the commentary cast. It's an absolute pleasure to have you here talking about this bombastic, badass blockbuster of a movie, Mortal Kombat. Thank you. Nice to be here. Um, like, did you grow up playing the games? Are you a fanboy the same way I am? No, I, I wasn't. Um, I, I didn't. I, I knew of it, but I didn't really play it that much. I played, I played other video games um, in my early, you know, my 20s and into my 30s, but I didn't, um, I never played Mortal Kombat. So I didn't really know, my, I mean, I knew the characters, but I didn't, I wasn't uh, immersed in it. I didn't really know it that well. I mean, it's probably not a bad way to come into like a really dense mythology like this. So you can be making sure first and foremost that this thing will translate to the average film goer, not necessarily game fan. Yeah, I think I did. I did come at it from an outsider looking in at it uh, rather than sort of from inside out. So that, and and I just took it, each character and all, all the, all the canon and all the, information that was inside it and and really looked at it just in sort of good versus evil classic story points there's nothing about the way those the guys at netherrealm have created the game that's particularly unique to the game that's not that doesn't exist in other uh, you know superhero movies or all those sorts of things so i really just looked at the source material i actually said to as we started pre-production um, just to get just to help people get their head around what we're trying to do here. I, I, uh, I told people, I said, imagine it's the source material for this was actually a series of novels that they happened to make a game out of. And then they made a web series out of, and then they made a couple of movies in the nineties out of, and that I said that just to recalibrate everyone's brain a bit, because there's sort of, there's this, quite an evolution with Mortal Kombat. So mo a lot of people remember the original, just the first version iteration of the game. But the, but the guys at NetherRealm have really um, moved it a long way. A um, lot more characters, a lot more stuff going on in the story. So it, you know, I, I needed to be considerate of all those, of, of all across that whole spectrum. So that was a way of, telling people who only knew the first iteration that no, no, there's more to this now. And um, we've got to treat it that way. 
I think that's a really smart thing, like as a, as a rally cry, when you've got thousands of people working for you to kind of set a tone for what this adaptation is going to be, you know, like uh, there's a perception around what video game movies should be in terms of the, the, the level of craft that uh, or care that maybe is given to them versus them being a commercial enterprise. And I say this as a game fan and a film fan and somebody that wants uh, game source material to be treated with the same reverence that a book is, but historically they haven't been. And I think the way that you sort of tell everybody like, you know, let's take this seriously, let's treat it with respect and let's uh, be open to uh, all of the different iterations of the game that have existed across time is, is really smart. And the, when you say that, the first thing that comes to my mind is the quality of the production design in this and the quality of the, the costumes and Scorpion and Sub-Zero's um, aesthetic really does feel like something that's steeped in history the same way that wardrobe is in uh, Lord of the Rings or something like that. But before I uh, go too far down the, the nerd rabbit hole, we should probably hit play on the movie and talk a bit more about all of this while it's unfolding before our eyes. So I'll give uh, everyone at home a couple seconds to queue up their streaming service of choice and we're going to hit play on Mortal Kombat in three, two, one. We are away. I, you're probably sensing from my, my preface already, Simon, that I'm a big fan of what you've done with the movie. I have one complaint, that mm. it doesn't start with somebody screaming Mortal Kombat. <laughs> did, you, <laughs> did you consider it? <laughs> did you try uh, it? No, I didn't consider it. <laughs> How do people know what movie they're watching if you don't scream the title at them in the That's opening true. moments? <laughs> That's true. It does have that benefit. No, I was just trying to... I mean, that's why the opening shot We'll just get through these logos, but that's why the opening shot of the movie is actually Harumi's face. It was I wanted the opening shot of the movie to be the opposite of what people thought the opening shot of a Mortal Kombat movie would be, uh, primarily to to really just um, it just sets up an expectation going in, and you know I tried to do this throughout. Um, didn't want to just do the obvious thing. So I wanted to set up that there was a heartfelt, human, genuine quality to the relationship here. Oh, and it's so beautifully done. Uh, uh, and it's a, it's a fact well known to me, uh, and I'm guessing a portion of our audience, but probably not everyone that's listening. The film was shot in South Australia, right? And this doesn't look like South Australia where, where our movie is opening here. Yeah, it's um, it's set in a... A, um, up in a, a old growth pine forest up in a place called Mount Crawford, just outside of Adelaide. And uh, as you know, Grant, uh, old growth pine forests don't really exist in Australia. So I was quite worried about that actually when we, we knew we were shooting in Australia, I said to everyone, I think this could be the hardest location to find. Um, but um, we found it and you know, Adelaide delivered. Um, uh, did you tear down this beautiful set when no. you were done or did this is this a location <laughs> do they have a beautiful uh, no. old japanese house out there in the in the forest no we we built that uh from scratch but that that the entire thing w uh, was built as a standalone piece of uh as a structure that works you can walk in and out of it and you can all the door everything works inside it and that was put on a semi-trailer and taken out to someone's farm in south australia and that's where it exists to this day so it didn't get destroyed it just got taken and 
that's incredible. That story had a much better ending than I expected it to. <laughs> I, I thought you should have at least Airbnb'd it for a few nights in situ to kind of recoup some of the, the, the Warner Brothers money spent on yeah, this we, film. We did talk about that. We did talk about that it could be a hilarious, you know, good fun Airbnb. Um, <laughs> but maybe they're doing that on the farm. I don't know. But I, I, I hope they are. Yeah. And I hope you get a free night's stay. Did, yeah. the, did the movie always start this way, like with sort of Scorpion's origin story? Uh, very, very early on, it didn't. Um, when I first came on, it didn't start this way. Um, it started differently. Um, but it, it was something that we, that I wanted to get the structure of the, and not just me, everyone involved wanted to, we felt this book ended, this, the, the rivalry between Scorpion and Sub-Zero as this, you know, a rivalry that, that, um, is very high profile within the within the game so we want i wanted to bookend it so that you we what we set up here we pay off in the final fight so yeah. uh and that and that becomes this bookended piece so once that structure started to come to the fore then everything aimed at that and that's what we did and and there's a lot of stuff within this opening scene specifics you know like the you know can i goes past behind's head and sticks in the in the tree that that gets paid off later as well and you know there's other little things that get um, paid off that get set up here i mean i'm too i'm too curious now i have to know when you came onto the project how did it start previously oh i'll keep that i'll keep that private <laughs> very differently put it that way understood can you yeah. give give us a sense for how it is that you came to be a part of this project uh sure um i'd done a a few video game commercials and um, from those um, I a couple of agents reached out and um, I signed on with a, an agent who's my agent now Dan Cohan a fantastic guy and he and ultimately he it just got sent to me in the sort of traditional way uh, script got sent to me I'd said to Dan I'd, the first film I do I don't want it to be a video game adaptation uh, so that, and what, he's that, nodding and going, yeah, yeah, we'll see, <laughs> yeah, we'll um, see. <laughs> yeah, yeah. But I think what what I realised, it's very hard to, you know, there's not many movies get made anymore. Um, even though it feels like there's thousands on Netflix, it's amazingly difficult to get something made. So um, the um, it was a, I think the risk leap for for the studio t for to sign someone on. Um, who's done video game commercials that feel a bit like little movies was probably a little bit easier. So I think that that might've helped. Um, and I just had a certain take on it that I guess they liked and, and we all got, got into it. So that, you know, that's, that's a very small short version of what happened, but it's basically this the story. You have to pitch in that scenario, like the equivalent oh, yeah. of a kind of TV commercial pitch. You're laying out your vision and, and some suggestions for what the movie's going to look and feel like. Yeah, absolutely. Yeah. I mean, it was quite a, quite a deal. It was, um, you know, it's the one thing perhaps people who aren't in the film industry or even in commercials to get a piece, to get work. It's so hard. It's so much work to get work. Yeah. <laughs> uh, isn't it Grant? <laughs> yes, it sure is. And I can only yeah. imagine on something like this, you know, the competition is fierce for the, that director's seat. Um, and also there's a lot of nervousness from 
all different sides about spending a ton of money to, to make this movie. They want to be confident that it's going to work. And that confidence comes from whatever it is that you put in front of them. So you certainly hear stories about directors that go and create full animatics of, of sequences of a film or a graphic novel of the whole movie or something like that. I mean, um, those are some of the more extreme examples, but certainly it's like you say, a lot of work to get a gig like this, no matter what, like how involved was your take and, and how did, might that compare to a standard kind of commercial pitch? Oh, it was, it's different commercial pitches that you, you want. They like a really long treatment with lots of words, <laughs> right? So I, I'm, I studied as a graphic designer, but I find myself writing all the time, um, which is kind of, it's not quite how I thought it would work out, but it's what you end up doing. So you just end up these, you know, really dense 50 page, you know, treatments with pictures and words for a commercial. Whereas it's <laughs> That's 30 seconds long. <laughs> yeah, yeah. Whereas it's a bit different with, um, with a film. It's a much more visual and it's more about getting across your singular point of view and, and what, and, and really looking at certain aspects of the script and sync and interpreting those. And it might be a simple idea or it might be, Hey, if we re reworked this scene to be more like this, it might deliver the idea better. And so it, it is actually in many ways, less work in pitching a movie than there is pitching a commercial. Well, uh, that's you know. heartening to hear. Yeah. Um, they, you know, they both take a lot of work, but then, and then, then you pitch to the studio, you get, get the gig. And then, and I think a lot of it's also conversations we had around the boardroom table. So there would be those first couple of pitches I did were, it was, you know, I'd go through, I went to one production company, then I met the next production company and they said, yep, he's not an idiot. We'll go to the next production company. And then, and then I went, then I end up with the studio and then I, then I go back and do the final pitch to the studio. So it was in those conversations going along that I think the, the, the material within the, the conversations also has some weight and the guys are listening and thinking, yeah, this is kind of what we are in line with as well. And um, as well as the presentation you put together. So, and then once we did it, we then to, to get the movie greenlit was another whole production in itself. Oh, it sounds straightforward. Yeah. I'm really. sure that was a very straight line. The way you presented that was very linear. It's like a Mortal Kombat tournament in a way. Yeah, that's or right. It didn't quite play out that way. Yeah, I mean, it's a lot of an enormous amount of work just to actually have people go, okay, yeah, you can make it. So, um, well, that, the world is thankful that you you fought those battles and won. Uh, speaking of incredible battles, while we've been talking, we're seeing sort of uh, Bihan and Hanzo going to war for the very first time and getting a taste of what these two martial arts legends can do, like where did this sit in your shooting order? Like, cause you're doing this on location. Was this like the last thing you shot or was this the very first thing that you shot? No, this was about the middle actually. Uh, we, we shot um, the open, the MMA fight at the start. And then we went out to Cuba PD and we shot all that stuff journeying through. And then we arrived back here after we'd been out in the desert for 10 days or, or so or a couple of weeks and this was um this was just like going to a day spa this was just a, <laughs> temperature was perfect it was just beautiful in this forest and there were no flies and it was just delightful and so to be able to come in here and then this was the first time uh hiroyuki was on set uh, um how was this no this wasn't joe's first day joe we did the jacks versus 
sub-zero fight before this. And um, so, yeah, everyone, you know, and Hero was the, he was, you know, the, the, the man and he came in and everyone was, it was wonderful just to watch him work and, and the two of them worked together. It was, it was a real, a real delight. So this, this actually has a, a real special spot for me for lots of different reasons. I'm, I'm really proud of this opening of the film. I love the way it looks. I love the way the tonality, the feeling of it, the emotion in it. Oh yeah. There's so much heart and soul in this. Like um, it's beautiful. And, and a big part of that is the chemistry between these two guys and how they can bring it in the fights, but then also bring it in moments like the one we're seeing here now where Hanzo's crawling towards his family, uh, fearing the worst and seeing the worst too. Yeah. Uh, yeah. That was uh, yeah, Bennett. We were watching this and Bennett, who's the line producer says to me afterwards, no one dies like Hiroyuki Sonata. <laughs> <laughs> um, and yeah, it was just a real joy to, to watch him work. And um, it was a, 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 yeah, the whole experience was wonderful. It, 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 once I, once we set the cameras up and we started shooting this, we'd obviously, you know, planned it and worked it out and blocked it all out and worked it out beforehand and had all the sets built and so forth, but then just to have it all set up and, have everything line up exactly how I wanted it to was a really satisfying feeling. And then, you know, Raiden rolls into town and Tadanobu Asano and Taddy's a fantastic guy. Um, kind of a rock star, actually. Um, Taddy, he's a... He's certainly well, got a rock star entrance there. Yeah, yeah, that's right. He deserves that. Like bloody thunderstruck right before our eyes. <laughs> yeah. Um, um, yeah, so so it was a a really enjoyable experience in here. How long do you get to shoot like a sequence like this? You know, there's, I mean, there's a lot to it. We're setting up characters. We're setting up the movie. We're setting up Raiden. And then there's a, a couple, two really big fight scenes, you know, one where um, Hanzo is taking down all of the goons, so to speak, and then a separate yeah. one with uh, Bihan. How yeah, long so do you have? I, I can't remember actually, but it's something like, I think we shot there for five days maybe and then second unit picked up a bit of the some of the stuff in the fight um for a couple of days uh so uh, it was seven days or something i mean that's that's it's a lot that's a lot to get done i'm sure you'd have yeah, we, seven days to shoot 90 seconds in the commercial yeah, world yeah but i we were pretty efficient and i had it all we planned it all out really meticulously storyboarded everything had it all organized so actually when we we're on the shoot days they all ran pretty smoothly and um there was really no no dramas it all just sort of went went as i mean obviously there's moments where you predict something and it doesn't quite work but um how would you split up the the main unit second unit sort of stuff you mentioned second unit came in and cleared things up is that like inserts of daggers in the ground or is it doing the kind of more complicated stunt setup stuff that just takes you know hours to get one shot yeah so second unit was directed by Carl Gardner, who's the stunt coordinator. And he had his stunt team and fight choreographer, Chan Griffin. So those guys um, were really, they were working out. So they would vis the fights. They'd basically shoot all the fights on video, work it all out. And then we would talk about it and we would work it out. And then sometimes they'd rework them if they needed to make changes and so forth. And then, so that was all planned out. We knew what all the shots were. And then those guys would go off and, and um, a lot of the time the fights 
Uh, it's sort of a mixture. Some of the fights I was there for, some of them I weren't. I wasn't because it was, it was we're doing so much. Um, and so it was pre-planned with their fight visas. And then, um, you know, it's like with the opening scene, we did, uh, there was a bit of overlap and then they went in and did a couple of the, I'm just trying, it's hard to remember actually, but um, you know, each one was slightly different. Like this, we, this was main unit, all of this stuff. Yeah. All of this fight. Was, main was there, uh, I mean, I'm sure everything gets lost in the fog of time in terms of how you worked out this or that, but was there a bit of a philosophy to it in terms of the fights that are about character or seeing somebody fight for the first time? Those are the ones that are going to be main unit or was it about the ones that are too technically complicated they're getting pushed to second unit or was it really just you know horses for courses it would every time was different yeah it was a bit different each time i think what also happened was i built a, a great deal of trust and faith in in kyle and his guys so when i saw what they were delivering and what they were capable of i, I mean i knew they were good they come they came with an incredible reputation and they're fantastic guys so that level of trust and that level of collaboration between all of us just became a really well-oiled machine and it just rolled pretty well, actually. So it became much easier as we went through. It, it not necessarily, the days didn't get easier, but certainly the workflow between us all uh, became very um, kind of effortless. And so therefore you just ended up, oh, we just picked this shot up, have a look at this. Oh, it's great. You know. I mean, I, I don't particularly enjoy having second unit, not because I don't like the guys. It's just that I like to be in, in control of, of everything as much as possible. But I had enormous trust in those guys. So, um, Right now on screen, we're seeing kind of Outworld for the, the first time in all of its kind of horror and desolate beauty. Mm. It, but it's based at least partly on Kubipedia or real locations that you could film was that true of this scene? Uh, I'm imagining this is maybe on stage, but with real location work put in the background that's been augmented. How did you break up the sort of outworld stuff? Yeah, so the, the scene that comes up is all shot in camera in Cooper P. Uh, no, that was in Lee Creek in the disused coal mine at the base of that. And then what we did is we used that as inspiration for everything we did in outworld. So that informed the visual aesthetic of of what Outworld did and in, super the, cool. in the backgrounds of those are actually plate shots of Lee Creek. So we used the, the, what was effectively in camera backgrounds. And then we, we built a set, you're right on, um, you know, for the, for the, the throne scape that, that hung out over the edge. And um, I wanted something and we all did actually, I just wanted something that felt it was an exterior. So it didn't just become a, a set of interiors all the time. Um, and I liked this sort of exterior idea of a throne room um, that set up Shang's uh, character. Uh, it's a lovely counterpoint because obviously Raiden's world is so subterranean or like embedded within the rocks. It's nice that Shang Tsung is the opposite in a way. Yeah, yeah, exactly. Um, the How did the, the breakup of like location shooting versus studio shooting play out on a movie like this? Well, I, I, I said, I want to shoot everything on location and in camera. So um, obviously with a film like this, you can't do that. Um, a lot of visual effects as well, but there was a lot of uh, location stuff. Um, there was 
some stage stuff. Um, obviously, the stuff on an outworld there on the Thronescape was was stage. Um, this was all location. We 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 went into a it was an old wool classing factory in Port Adelaide, and Naaman Marshall, who's the production designer, who's just an astonishingly talented guy and has the most wonderful spirit of anything's possible. Anything can be done. That's he what you need. That's what you need for this sort of show. Yeah. And he came in here and he said, oh, I know what we'll do is over the top of the cage, we'll cut the, cut the second floor out. So we cut that whole <laughs> second floor out. Uh, so it allowed for it to feel like it was, um, you know, two, two levels and you could see the levels rather than being too close in and cramped so this was all all location and this was all we went in and built into this um that's crazy to me that the the audacity so to speak that you'd walk into a real location and go yeah this is good but we'll just cut the bloody ceiling slash floor out that yeah. presumably they'll be fine with that um yeah well the the guys the everyone in adelaide was so fantastic the the people that you know, own places and the government it was just they i mean you've worked there you know what it's like i mean it's it was a joy working there they were they really rolled the red carpet out for us so we really felt um looked after and whenever we went into these locations and naaman had you know those audacious requests people were like yeah sure no problem whatever <laughs> you want Mortal combat you got it yeah, you, you got, got it, it. Um, right up and this this location is actually just down the road uh from where we shot the interior um, and it's all in Port Adelaide as well. So these were these. So that building in the background there is actually the building that the MMA fight is in. That's the same place. There you go. The movie magic. I was yeah. wondering, like, was this entire location where we are now a bit of a build? Like, was this that sort of like diner aesthetic of like full front glass windows isn't super common in Adelaide? Did you happen to find that right across the street from your other location or was this a, a facade? So this had a couple of things going for it. One was it we could control. There were no one, well, a handful of people lived down here, but no one really went to this area and we could lock it off and we could control the whole area. Uh, quite a big area. And it's, um, it's right near where the, there's the Pirate Life Brewery is just down the road from this. So we oh, yeah. go down and get a beer after. <laughs> but that, but that, that didn't diner, factor into the choice at all, I'm no, sure. No, not at all, not at all. So that diner is actually was built on top of an, a pre-existing store that was there. So it's a corner store and we just re reclad it in a much more US feeling diner feeling uh, architecture and aesthetic. So we reskinned it and um, it, um, um, yeah. And it, it, it just works. Really it just well. works. Yeah, You know, and it's it's like, look, I'm probably getting a little too inside baseball here, but, you know, uh, uh, as a filmmaker myself and someone who spent some time in Adelaide, it, it would be a challenge to to make sure that the audience isn't thrown out of the movie by going, wait a minute, where are we? This isn't the United States at all. Like the, the streets don't necessarily look the same. Like I said, the diners don't necessarily look the same. So yeah. people take that stuff for granted when they're watching a movie like this, but you and your production designer are working every minute to go, okay, well, we got to shoot on this street and not that street because only this street and from this point to that point look like yeah. they fit within our world. Yeah, absolutely. There was, I mean, the conversations we had about all that stuff was just endless. I mean, it, even this car, even this truck was, we had to bring that out from the US. Yeah. Because that doesn't exist in Australia, that, that truck. 
Um, and and when you get to Sonya Blade's sort of encampment, like that yeah. sort of location, is it's all you can tell been tuned to to feel yeah. like it fits in this world. Yeah, and so we had to get multiples of that car. So it wasn't just a matter of getting one. We had to get multiples because we beat the shit out of it with the ice did cannon. You, did you get to keep one? Is it is this uh, now your bush bashing car? No, it was um as the the truck at the end, the F one fifty, um the second. Uh, uh, the A camera operator, um, Florian, he actually, he, he bought that for like nothing. And so he got that. Um, I'm sure he got it for a steal because now it's probably worth even more because it was yeah, a yeah. picture vehicle. <laughs> it's used in model. He's going to sell it to Universal Studios and you'll see yeah, it on yeah. the tour. Yeah. Um, but this was, this was all in the center of Adelaide, this. Um, well, I wanted to single out the ice effects. We're seeing one of the many great examples of it right now. And while we've been talking, we've been seeing heaps of other examples because there are so many different looks that ice can have in terms of how angular it is and how transparent it is or how reflective it is. And like, it's all incredibly well done in this movie. Like, is how much is practical? How much is CG? Because uh, there's, there's magic going on here that's difficult to comprehend. Well, we went into the movie not really thinking we were going to do an enormous amount of CG ice um we weren't we i just kept pushing the amount of ice that was in the film so i kept like pushing. this shot that's right it's happening right now it's a beautiful one with the the kind of bullets freezing as they're coming out of the gun incredible so well done yeah. uh, that was actually the stunt guys idea that was one of their ideas in with their fight viz that was that wow. was their that have worked on that and because i said to them i want something that just shows how much how in control sub-zero is he needs to look like he is completely unbeatable and in total control so the just the arrogance of like okay yeah i'll put it to my face and i don't really care because i can freeze anything at any moment wow was in the idea so i i thought you know again you just as directors we employ smart people to make us look good so yeah you steal the best ideas and claim yeah. them as your own and only yeah. credit them on podcasts keep them happy um but yeah that, um so the the and so that the first ice you saw, like all of this stuff is obviously VFX ice. Yeah, the is. stuff that's spontaneously appearing yeah. before our eyes. Yeah. You're not and actually that, freezing Jax's arms off here. No. No, and this is um, Rising Sun, uh, the visual effects company in Adelaide did all this and they are extraordinary. Um, just yeah, I'm happy to get super nerdy about ice. Was was uh, Were they the VFX provider for all of the ice or were you splitting it up? Because somebody's an ice master. Yeah, so the ice itself took, there was a whole area in one of the warehouses just for ice R&D. So <laughs> Naaman started it, who's the production designer. He started the ice uh, R&D. And primarily because in, that, in the start of that scene where there's the ice, I wanted it to feel that he had been there. I wanted to see the, and I wanted it to feel like he was putting blockages, blocks in the way and guiding Jax to a certain point. And so we didn't, we, we did that. And then it was taking too long to tell that story and it was kind of getting a bit slow and ponderous. So, but in the pursuit of doing that, the R and D on the ice in camera ice really ramped up. So it became a very, they were working on it for a couple of weeks and then they would, then they showed some tests and we had some stuff in there. And then it was as a result of doing that R&D that allowed us, it unlocked a few ideas in, in the production design team. And they worked out a few machines that could actually mass produce and crank out this ice, which was just extraordinary what they did. 
And then that allowed us to make the final fight even more expansive with the in-camera ice because of the R&D that was done for here. So That's, yeah, that end fight is incredible. And uh, so what, I mean, I don't need to get into polymers. I don't, I'm not that much of an ice nerd, but I, I, what, what is it? Like, are you going to tell me it's like, oh, it's glad wrap and we spray some stuff on it? Or is it like really some concoction out of a lab? Um, it's, it's lots of different things. So there's safety versions, which is rubberized. And then there's stuff that is kind of glad wrap. And then there's stuff that's, um, uh, you know, epoxy plastic. Uh, and there's stuff that's just, just gets wrapped on it. Um, and depending upon where it was in the shot, it, it could be more or less detailed because there's a very shallow depth of field I'm using here. Um, so, um, and for that reason, it allowed us to be, um, you know, we could put a lot of stuff in the background and it was okay. So this scene we're looking at here is the stuff that was shot in Lee Creek at the bottom of the disused coal mine. I mean, obviously Goro wasn't there, but um, that's pretty much what it looked like. Um, all of that, most of that was in camera. Down to the time of day as well. You would do that a number of times with some really beautiful sort of dusk sorts of shots. Yeah, so we shot that at dusk and then we just enhanced the sun in that opening shot when Melina walks down because it was just feeling a little monotone. And um, we originally were going to put a lot of VFX in that shot, but I just kept stripping it out because it just looked fake. You know, it's, I kept saying, this looks like she's walking along a blue screen platform in a parking lot you know it doesn't look real so we just ended up taking all the vfx out and just all we left was a little bit of an enhancement of the sun on the, that right hand side of frame and oh, it's beautiful like it, it really does work um and then we just painted out some service roads um and um that was it so um yeah i, I love that stuff i'm really happy with the way that um the lee creek stuff looks so I can nerd out about ice and uh, VFX vendors and uh, polymers all day if given the chance, but we should probably at some point talk about your incredible cast, uh, another member of which we're, we're meeting now, Sonia Blade, yeah. played by, is it J Jessica? Yeah, Jess McNamee, yeah. Can you tell yeah. us a bit about the casting process on this? Because it's, it's a challenge, right? You've got to cast people that look like the characters from the game, but they have to be able to do the fights to some extent. And they have to be able to act and have personalities that match what the script demands of them. Like it's uh, not a small problem. No, it was actually quite an extensive process, uh, which was all happening in the in pre-production, obviously. Um, Jess was um, someone who I'd, I saw her in the Battle of the Sexes uh, film where she played uh, Margaret Court, the, the Australian tennis player. It was a very small role, but I remember thinking, wow, she is really impressive in how just the authenticity in her performance that she gave so I, I remembered that and and then I looked her up at the time it's like oh you know she is Australian and I'd, I'd never seen anything that she'd been in and but I thought she was fantastic and then when this came up I I thought of her and I thought wow she I wonder if that would translate you know and I did a bit more research and then she she did come, I found out is Jess coming in to read for it and she was, and she just nailed it. Her performance is very authentic. It's very real. You, you believe what she's saying. She has a, a genuine quality about her delivery and, and that's what really mattered with, with Sonia because it, she wasn't delivering the comedy. She wasn't, she was, in fact, she was delivering a lot of exposition a lot of the time. So that was a consideration. And, and I think she looks... 
she looks like a real version of Sonia. Um, you know, and I, I'm I was really happy, and she did a great job. She was a she's hilarious, Jess. She's good fun, um, and I it sort of each each cast member had had their own set of um, needs really. Like Josh Lawson, who plays Kano, who we're about to meet in a second. You know, he his improv comedic improv ability is just extraordinary. So I would say 90% of what, what Josh says in the film is all Josh's improv. 90%. That's amazing. Yeah. I mean, it, yeah. is he basically playing himself? Is this how Josh talks like at the no. catering table? <laughs> no, no, he's a very, he's a, he's a gentleman is Josh. He's a, 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 a civilized human being. Um, and, and he's he, another well-known Australian actor. Were you familiar with Josh beforehand? And when you read the script, were you thinking, oh, this could be a, a, a Josh moment here? No, or was it no, actually I wasn't. I, I remember it. I remembered him from Anchorman 2, but to be honest, I'd, I, I had forgotten about him. And certainly the way he looks in Anchorman 2, you don't think, oh, that's perfect Kano. You know, he doesn't have his beard and he's got big blonde hair. So I, he came in and he read for it and he he just nailed it again he was just it was one of those serendipitous moments where he had a beard for a while because he was like couldn't be bothered shaving so he came in and did it with a beard i reckon if he hadn't had the beard we might have overlooked him you know that's so crazy and it's it's a story told all too frequently right like yeah it's such a huge amount of luck that has to sort of meet with talent for, for for these sorts of things to come together and i just remember seeing you both i i this uh, Richard Brenner, who's the head of the studio, he he saw and loved his performance and his read. And and what I liked about the read also was just Josh improved in the read a lot. And I wanted that. I wanted someone who was going to all in pursuit of making the comedy feel effortless and natural, yeah, and not feel too set up. So um, when I saw he was doing that I wasn't I didn't know that Josh Lawson was capable of that but he certainly is and it was extraordinary and you know he he really just swung hard and and it just all worked and and I had so much else going on on every shoot day that when Josh was improving I would just say to him Josh just keep doing what you're doing mate it's fantastic <laughs> um, and he made life easier because of of his the homework he did and the work he did was just was wonderful it's such an interesting thing because like you're not just casting a movie really like if this goes well you're casting a franchise so i assume you mentioned the head of the studio there's probably a lot more conversation and consideration given to like okay but you know can audiences go with this person across multiple movies for as long as we can keep making money from this thing was that did you feel that at all like the sort of weight of they wanted this to be a franchise and 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 there's a lot of kind of like were there research groups around, oh, Josh Lawson is the perfect Kano or did it really come down to you saying, no, I think he's the one? Uh, there was no talk of franchises. There was no pressure. There was no talk of, okay, we need this person to go beyond one. It was none of that. It was always only, let's just try and do the best we can on this film. If we if we pull this off, then maybe the the, the audiences will let us know whether they want another one or not. That was that simple. That was the end, start and the end of the conversation. You know, there might be little jokes along the way, like, oh, that would be funny in a sequel, but it's, but it was never treated as if there, that, that was, was the a target. No, not at all. Um, but it just puts you, just, it sets the, it sets the attitude incorrectly if you do that. You've just got to just focus on this. It's hard enough to do this without trying to think of that as well. 
Was there a moment when you realized, I mean, it sounds like you knew pretty early on that, that Josh was giving you something pretty special, but did you have a sense that, oh, he's going to be like a real fan favorite here? Like, cause that's what bore out, right? Like the, in the reviews and when I talked to my friends and I'm sure you felt it from people that have seen the movie that, you know, Josh is really incredible. Here he is on screen holding the beating heart of reptile and savoring <laughs> the, the moment. He feels like he's minutes away from not just chewing the scenery, but chewing reptile's yeah. heart. Um, yeah. Uh, you know, he, he really does do something pretty magical here. Um, did you know that that was maybe coming down the pipe uh, is, is part one of the question. And part two of the question is once you know that, do you think, oh, crap, we can't kill him off because I, I want him in the sequel if I'm going to make the sequel. I know you said, you know, you don't want to put the cart before the horse, and but you, you kind of have to think and hope at a certain point. I mean, the, the way the movie ends, you're certainly hoping for a sequel um, unless that was a reshoot or something. Uh, no, it so- was... You know, you do enough to have these joiner pieces that you, you know, you almost need to do, you, do, you want to do, you'd be moronic to not consider it, but we don't obsess over it. Yeah. You know, it becomes like, all right, we know we're going to do this. Okay, let's just set those joiner pieces up. If, you know, if it goes well, then great. Um, but um, I, I th- this moment here, actually, this was the first time Josh was on set. And up until this point, we'd been working with uh, Lewis, who plays Cole, and we'd been working with with Jess, and um, and we'd done the the Sub Zero attack on the on the diner, and this is Josh's first day here, and coming in strong, coming in real strong, and it was fantastic actually. It was um, it was great to watch um, just another. Um, member, you know, it's like another person came to the party and was like, oh, that person's cool. So, <laughs> so it, it became a, what I was finding was as, as we we're shooting and as we we're gathering the material, I could see all the facets start to build of what was going to, what you, what you pre-theorize and you plan for and you predict. But a lot of the times you predict for the organic nature of, of acting and performance and uh, to, to just happen um that's what i'm doing i'm trying to create the best environment for these guys to do uh their best work in that's i want to give these guys the freedom to do that and um a lot of what being a director is 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 creating that environment an on-set environment an on-set feeling that makes everyone feel like they can contribute and collaborate and and everyone it just makes things more efficient and i think you get better people work better in that situation and the performances uh, my hope is that they get better when, when that happens. So these, you know, Josh came to set and just started cranking it up. And I think none of it, I never really, I don't think in those terms of, Oh, this is, he's going to be a fan favorite. I'd, I'd never really thought that. I just remember thinking, well, he's making the crew laugh and he's making me laugh. And he is a new injection of, of fun that I knew was a very important ingredient. And obviously we pre, uh, it was in the script, um, you know, what, t- what type of character Kano is, but it was, um, it was, it was wonderful to watch him work in that, in that way. He allows uh, you to sort of have your cake and eat it too, right? Because fans of the movie, fans of the, the universe, I should say, kind of want you to take it seriously, but yeah. on some level it's inherently stupid. Like they were just fighting a reptile. And I say that with love in my heart for, yeah. for Mortal Kombat. Like I grew yeah. up on this stuff. Right. So uh, you know the the fact that all the other characters can be playing stuff for real, 
but Kano is just having the time of his life and is ready to undercut serious moments with some levity is part of what sets the tone of this kind of like millimeter perfect. Well, yeah, I, it was a, a crucial. If we did, if we didn't have Kano or someone delivering this uh, comedy, then it, it would have all bent out of shape and be taking itself way too seriously. It was all part of the the fun nature of the entertainment. Fun also can be how the costumes look, how real something feels, how beautiful something is. But fun is also can be funny. So you need all the ingredients. A fun experience is something where something feels like it's been cared for and loved and um and taken and even the the comedy's taken seriously that makes yeah. sense yeah. yeah well it comes from a place of character right like it, it's yeah. earned in as much that that's authentic to who kano is and how yeah. you set him up and really i wanted to make sure we quarantined the comedy into character rather than uh one of the early versions of the script had kind of it almost had a comedic tone to the entire film right and that, and I, that was one of the things I said early on was I, I think we need to, we need to house the comedy and be, have it be born out of character. And yeah. that person is obviously Kano. So um, people can then reflect upon that like Lewis does in, uh, in, an, in the earlier scene where he says, oh, look, you, you spelt it wrong. It's spelt wrong. <laughs> um, no. So those moments can come about like that. But, but if we really had um, someone who was going to, fuel that it, it feels more genuine and authentic when the comedy comes from a character rather than sprayed all over the whole film from the perspective of the of the filmmaker it needs to come from the character i find it interesting because you know um whether you come from a background of kind of tracking with the games or not like you simon as the director of this like you have managed to thread the needle and kind of i think land on the tone that fans wanted because you know the more recent games like mortal kombat 11 was a was the big reboot moment or whatever a very cinematic and very violent right they're not funny <laughs> you know right. there's there's a comedy that comes from the extreme nature of the violence right uh but but it's treated as like real visceral stuff like gut punches that really punch you in the gut um, and, the, and the movie does that too in, in exactly the way that you're talking about by centering the comedy in the characters the fights aren't necessarily funny. They can be fun, no. but they're taken seriously and they hurt both the characters yeah. and the audience in the way that everybody wants when they click play on a Mortal Kombat movie. Yeah, they need to feel like they hurt. So, I mean, here's, this is where Liu Kang arrives. And it was important to me that each of the characters got revealed in a way that was appropriate for them. Um, and And so... Each of them has that, you know, Sonia comes out of the darkness and beats the crap out of Lewis. Um, Ludi comes out of, Liu Kang comes out of a, the sun, the fireball, you know, his, his arcana is fire. Um, and this was a great moment. This was a, one of my really favorite scenes we shot because PJ Voten was the AD on this, who he's the AD who did um, Fury Road and has worked with George Miller for years. And he's an amazingly brilliant guy, brilliant brilliant brain very quirky interesting guy um great sense of humor and i loved working with him and as you can tell this is all shot at magic hour which is not an easy thing to do because if you look through this whole thing that sit you know that sequence what it lasts a couple of minutes well if you look at the, the sun in the background it's it progresses effect correctly as the sun goes down the sun was there going down lou kang comes out of it 
then when he comes down the hill and see now it's just just dropping and and now so so what it what we had to do is the way we set that up that whole sequence um, was we worked out we spent a whole day working out where all the camera positions were going to be for and we had three different positions and we had three cameras in it so we had nine right wow three cameras position a three cameras position b three cameras position c and then we just went through it and we rehearsed it rehearsed it rehearsed it and then we rehearsed that and then we rehearsed that so we'd done it all and then what we did is we just cut we just went did that moved it moved it all did that moved it all did that and the actual shooting of it was wasn't very long at all but the planning of it was all day yeah and wow it, and that was i loved that it worked beautifully and that was the brain of pj vote working there um just sussed it all out knew exactly what we needed to do and um i've got some um i'll, I'll put them on instagram at some point i've got some i'm really the storyboards we did on that day which are my scribbles um i'm i'm proud to say match almost exactly um doesn't hey. happen very often but they match pretty much that as we stood there and worked it all out as we we're standing in this beautiful desert in Cooperpedia, it was great and uh not too many flies coming in at, at exactly the wrong moment uh, and ruining oh. that perfect planning or is there a bit uh, of cg touch-ups to remove yeah. flies that there was a lot of flies there were so many flies in fact they were all uh it was ludy's really that's ludy's first scene that we did with him and and ludy is a really beautiful guy he's it's like he floats everywhere He's this really spiritual kind of beautiful love. And he's very funny. When you get to meet him, he's just such a genuine funny guy. But when you first meet him, he's got this kind of floaty vibe to him. And he comes down out of the, out of the, uh, out of the mountain and he comes up and he starts talking to the guys, the three of them. <laughs> and there's flies all around his eyes. And he didn't oh, blink. He did not blink once. Well, and, that's that's crazy and speaks yeah. to a real zen core that i don't have yeah it's amazing and so you know a lot of times they would we would shoot he would do it and then we had to paint out a lot of the flies that are on their faces um and we had to actually cut around certain takes where i think there might have even been one hand where at one point josh just can't take it anymore and he moves his hand but we had to actually <laughs> put a new arm on so it doesn't move <laughs> Um, that's exactly what a director wants their vfx budget going on <laughs> no it was great so that was that was good fun out there um since we've been talking we've moved into sort of raiden's den here and and there was a brief moment where they were sort of coming down a tunnel at the sort of transition moment from the outside yeah. world coming into raiden's world was that a real location or was that a matte painting or something because it looked very real it's a real location it's a it's in Cooperpedia in the opal mining town and um the story goes that someone up there blasted out these tunnels to look for opals um, and they were the tunnels that were left there. It got to a certain degree. Certain, and then the tunnel they go down that gets smaller and smaller, that was at the end of that tunnel. It was all just there like that. Wow. So then we matched. Then once we found that, we then matched the aesthetic of Raiden's Temple to what we found in up in Kuvapiti. So it felt very real. Um, rather than the other way around, rather than designing this and then going to try and find it. What was the sort of design process like? I mean, there's so much design in this movie from the, the world of this temple uh, to the, the look of the characters, right? Like right now we're seeing Jax in this, in this sort of moment laid low without his arms. And of course, we're going to transition towards him having 
the the reimagined version of his his badass arms that fans will know him for having like uh, they're not like the arms that are in the game of course uh but they are evocative of them uh and they look fantastic so you know that's a, a thousand and one choices to get to that moment can you tell us a little little bit about how you approached designing all these characters and who you worked with to do it yeah so the characters were really designed there was Cappy Island, the costume designer, who is just extraordinary, amazingly talented person. She's amazing. I love it a bit. Um, she, um, and then uh, her, her concept artist, uh, Seb, I'll butcher his last name, Sebastian Ciaflione. Um, didn't, didn't sound butchered. It was yeah. commitment there. <laughs> um, he is an amazingly talented uh, concept artist and I ended up carrying him through all the way through post because he's so talented he did a lot of the, the design work um, and then there was a guy called Jeremy Love who's a concept artist and the, that was a sort of an ongoing rolling design process of all of the characters all the time all through pre all the characters were being worked on and then even the even Jax's arms they hadn't really been settled on until we got into post and and Seb and Jeremy worked on those um, as we kept working and and really ultimately we did I don't know we did probably um, I don't know how many versions of those arms but they're just there's a lot of mechanical limbs in movies now right um, so they were all just feeling derivative and I kept saying no Jack's had them first. We should. Yeah, well, that's true, right? Winter Soldier's uh, arms look a yeah. hell of a lot like Jack's right. arms from the game. Yeah. yeah, yeah. So it became this. That was quite a tricky, quite a tricky thing. So then we ended up going back to the classic and going, all right, what is it about these? We need to make it so if you squint your eyes at the classic one and then the reimagined 2.0 version, then they need to look similar because that that's what Jack's sort of silhouette and that's what he yeah. makes him up and so that's when we settled on that that as a sort of a broad concept we said okay and then we started working within that brief and then ultimately we had a, a reimagined version and and it was jeremy and um seb who, who arrived at that uh, i'm getting my own flashbacks to the process of like designing the robot in in i am mother and sort of the the stages of getting to the finished product because that movie was going to live or die based on whether or not the robot looked any good. Um, yeah. And I know that it didn't always look good because that's the the process of doing anything, right? It's iterative. You're learning and you're enhancing to get to the point that it hopefully looks great like all of your costumes do in this. But were there moments along the way when you were really sweating and you were like, oh God, really? Is this, we, no, we this character can't look like this. We're going back to the drawing board. We're starting again. We're going to keep pushing to get to what we're seeing on screen now uh yeah it, i never i always had complete faith in in cappy and seb and their entire team and there was a whole team of of people she she was working with her whole team were amazing so i always had complete faith i never had any issues there were times though we were that i mean sub-zero's first costume we, we it was designed seb and cappy worked on it it looked great on paper and then and then when Joe put it on, it just didn't work. And um, that was a, a moment. Um, but we just, but you know, Cappy just said, right, we'll work on that. And you just learn from that. And then what she came up with was amazing. Well, so, I'm going to guess like that, uh, whatever that original design was, it was more 
uh, beholden to the look from the game, right? Because the minute you see the trailer for this movie and you see Sub-Zero, you know it's Sub-Zero. But yeah, he doesn't really look as much like the character from the game as, say, Jax does, thanks to your yeah. efforts, right? So I, I imagine maybe trying something that was a little more traditional and then seeing feeling it didn't work liberated you to, 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 to go the next level and kind of make it look more like armor and make it feel steeped in a tradition, you know, that we don't yet understand or something like that. Because, I mean, it looks great, but it's, it's certainly not a V-neck of blue sashes going down to a, a loincloth. Yeah, well, we knew that... I get each of the characters had a, we put, we had a giant room and we put all the characters up of every iteration we could find. And we put them up on the wall and we looked at those and said, okay, what is the, what are the key defining features? Because they, they evolve a lot within the game. They're rad, they've really changed a lot, but they've kept whatever that singular DNA is. And it was, it was the blue and it was the V and it was the shoulder curves. And so we looked at those things and then just tried to push it as far away from that as possible and make it feel very muscular and lived in and noble and powerful, but keep it that way, but keep those essential ingredients. And, but the, no, the original costume that didn't work wasn't like the, the we knew that wasn't gonna work. We knew we had to get away from the blue floppy sashes. <laughs> that, that was never in our, in our design aesthetic but we knew there had to be a v and if you look at subs armor there's a there you see a yeah, no, there is. and that's really all we we realized oh that's all we need we don't need it to be beyond that as long as we had the shoulders and as long as we had um uh obviously the mask and so forth i have to give you props for kung lao you know yeah because it, it works man it really works but I'd have been nervous about the the giant hat and you went there with the size of the hat and everything, you know, but it looks lethal and he wears it with such confidence and he strikes those graphic poses that he, he really sells it. Oh, uh, Max, Max is amazing. Yeah. Max is a champion guy um, and really understood the physicality of what makes up Kung Lao. And, you know, actually probably Kung Lao's costume was the last one we, we designed because and, and Max, I think Max was the last person we cast. And it was because of the hat. It was because that hat, we, it was, that drove everything. I knew I, we had to get that hat right, but it sort of defies logic and defies physics and desires, defies history. It doesn't really fit into anything. It's not like it's, oh, it's this type of hat from Chinese. Yeah, right. not really. It's this its own thing. So, but it had to be that size. And we tried, we had multiple prototypes that none of them worked and we put them on. But then, then I, I was constantly going back to looking at the, all the, the cut, the auditions and the casting and the reads and so forth. And, and I'd see a costume design and then we would do that. And then I'd look at those. And so it was this evolving thing where it came together. And then one day I just remember going back through them again and there was Max. Oh, and it was like bloody sweet moment right now on screen yeah. with him sort look of him. running his hand along the brim and it just yeah. making it work. Yeah. And then once Max came into town and we just started then continuing to evolve the costume around Max and what he was capable of. And some of his moves here, the, the hat's actually CG because it was obviously the flying stuff is, but, um, but um, it was, wasn't safe. He was doing these sort of spinning 360s and stuff. He couldn't do it with a hat on. Well, I was going to ask actually, like, cause it's no small feat to stop it wobbling. Like when the guy is that, um, 
acrobatic, you know, like, but not necessarily when he's doing the biggest flips, but even just at the start there where the fancy footwork and kicking and things like either that CG or you've got some really serious and impressive rigging going on to strap that thing to his head. Is is it one or the other? Uh, It was, it was both. It was, that was really well strapped to his head and that we knew that the, we tried for a while there not to have a strap, but then that wasn't going to work. And then, we realized that, you know, the strap does exist in several of the iterations of the game. So, um, so that, that strap that we see is actually a really key part to keeping yeah. it on his head. It's not Absolutely. You know, doing a job. Yeah. Um, as straps that, are known to do. Yeah. And that's why when he catches it, he puts it on and he has to put it on because we couldn't, we couldn't have it without it. Um, but he but, does that with such confidence that it's like, that's great. Like it really, yeah. It's almost like a final about, flourish. The thing about Max is that he's incredibly, incredibly coordinated, incredibly athletic. And he is, I mean, he's Olympic level gymnast type, you know, so, so he really understands the rhythm of his body and the coordination and the, how it looks. I mean, he's like a, he's like a lethal dancer, you know, he's um, what he's the, and he was in the Jackie Chan um, stunt team and, a fight choreographer his own right but he so he's an incredibly talented guy and that's what in the casting process i knew we needed to have that built into these guys because on set i didn't have time to faff around getting someone to learn something you know max just had to understand the rhythm of that and it seems simple but it's actually those sort the sort of things that can really dig you in and kill you because you um the small things are often the things that you just think, why is this so hard? And it, But he got it, you know. Oh, absolutely, right? Because as a director, you can't be worrying about, I wonder how he's going to put the, the strap on after he catches the thing, right? But like for the character, he's done that his entire life. So, you know, like he's doing it with incredible confidence and, and, and self-assured nature, I yeah. guess. Uh, so if you've got an actor that's able to do that work for you and bring it to life like he has been doing it for his whole life, yeah. uh, that's brilliant. Yeah, no. Uh, the the sort of uh, the sequence that's been playing out while we've been talking is the you know, all the characters trying to find their arcana mm. um, in this sort of secret training ground, whilst our antagonists are sort of like stuck behind Raiden's shield, really wanting to take them down uh, before the Mortal Kombat Mortal Kombat tournament can even kick off. I guess the question I'm building up to is like, when did you guys twig to the idea of like, well, what if there isn't a tournament? You know, because on paper, you say, we're going to make a Mortal Kombat movie. The assumption is there's going to be a tournament. Was it a really intentional choice to say, well, let's not do that. Let's do something else. Yeah, it was. But we also, we had to, we had to, uh, had to be a part of the film. But it, it was a decision made pretty early, primarily because we didn't want to just redo the first film. And, and also the nature of a tournament type structure to a script actually defines it a certain way. It becomes a sport movie in a yeah. way. Not exactly, but kind of. It starts to yeah. become like a sport movie, right? So, and it's inherently very contained then, right? Because you're at yeah. wherever the tournament is taking place. Correct. So it, it stops you being... No, you can have... Exp- you could. We could probably work out a way. There's always a solution to everything. But yes, in... It's, it's natural default sets you in a certain structure that we didn't really want to have to uh, work towards 
and be constrained by. Plus, it didn't want to just do this, do the same film again from the uh, from the beginning. It needed to feel like it had it to a new was breaking new ground and they had a new territory to it. So that was the primary reason. Um, but we also thought it would be we needed to talk about it. It needed to be a device within the story. So we thought, oh, we'll just have Shang does you know wants to cheat doing and the dirty doing the dirty so um and that's you know and then we sort of turn it on its head a bit once we get into the void and and Kyle says well if, you know they don't want it they're trying to avoid a tournament so we'll give them a version of our own um, uh, I mean it, yeah, that was not lost on me it was it, that was a very smart choice you know we then cut to this fight that's going to take place on a bridge it's almost exactly yeah. the imagery that starts a regular fight within the game yeah yeah, that's right. So that's the pit, and that was the bridge from the pit. And if you look closely, there's the, the moon up in the background quite subtly. Um, yeah. Um, so, yeah, I mean, this this scene here we're looking at here is an amazing bit of Josh Lawson. And Max, I think, did an yeah. amazing job here. Um, this was, this was a, you know, we planned this out quite a lot, this scene. We blocked it all. Um, we rehearsed it, we blocked it all back in pre-production, worked out where all the shots were. Um, because again, when you get to set, you want the actors and you want them not to be constrained. They're constrained enough by us faffing around, moving cameras around, <laughs> it already breaks their rhythm. So I always try and just sort of be as planned as possible so that these guys can be affected as little as possible. Well, and dinner table scenes are notorious for being surprisingly complicated to do with various eye lines and all of that sort of stuff. Yeah, so we so we worked it all out, and then, um, yeah, Josh, Josh, on the day, um, we worked on the script to to give him more material to to crank up to and to warm up to, so that he had words to be really sort of fueling his uh, seeing his rage build break down and break through yeah that's right to laserize yeah and um and i think this is a real really good example of josh's skill because if you look at this the first part of this performance while there's some comedic lines within it there's actually the delivery of it's incredibly serious and very it's pretty nasty actually yeah i'm i was a little concerned it might have actually crossed the line but i think this piece that comes up now where this, where he realizes and he turns into a 14 year old kid again, um, <laughs> undercut it again, like Kano, that's his job in the film. So, you know, we felt that Kano was like a insecure 14 year old boy uh, underneath this bravado. And cause the moment his any, you know, being called a failure was the worst thing of possibly being called. And because he's ultimately really insecure. So, yeah, that's funny because that really does come through. The exact moment you were talking about, you know, it's quite confronting and scary. It's like the sort of the most angry Kano gets. But there is also, credit to Josh, this undercurrent of like insecurity about oh, yeah. like, I can't believe that you're standing up to me. What does that mean about, you know, me and my strength and how imposing I am? So it's like this moment of vulnerability overlaid with this moment of aggression that results in this like bang laser eye from the very center of who he, yeah. he, whoever he is. That's right. And so it sort of comes out of the wound that Reptile gave him. Um, that's yeah. where it comes forth. So, um, but yeah, it's all about, I think, I think uh, the bad guys are generally and, and often comedy comes from characters and in their insecurity. I mean, look at 
Alan Partridge, look at David Brent. Um, yeah. They're all insecure guys, and that and that comedy is fueled, and rage and and you know, are often it's often fueled by an insecurity or a, or a or a not addressing your own weakness, and that was what Kano was. He was he's a insecure guy who's always trying to blast outwards to because he can't face his own fears really or his own weakness you mentioned no. um that for that scene you and josh worked on the script the morning of, mm. of you know that makes complete sense it's 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 such a performance heavy moment it's got to be about what josh needs to get him there um but how much was the script in flux when you were shooting separate to the idea that josh is sort of plussing it with improvisation like we talked about like were there things that you were changing on the trot as you were uncovering which ways the story wanted to go yeah you do a bit of that you do a bit of um because you what you you arrive at a scene or a moment and by the variables that have been placed there that you've planned sometimes it's a scene or a performance or something will go in one direction you think actually no this can be better if we say this or this is just isn't working. We thought it was going to work, but, but the dialogue's not working. Why is it not working? Oh, it's because of this. And because now we're in the environment, it doesn't make sense because of this. And, and so, yeah, you, you're always open to that. Uh, doesn't mean it always happens that way. I mean, a lot of the stuff is just straight off the script. It's just that um, you, you, you wouldn't stop trying to make it better just to say, well, we did what was on the script. You know, oh, you know. of course not. Yeah. Did, so you, were there things that you shot that didn't make it into the final cut in the same vein? You know, like you're always trying to make it better in the way that you're talking about and that carries right through to post-production, of course. Like oh, yeah. what were some was, of the big changes that, that you uncovered in the editorial process? Uh, there's a lot. Um, it's um, editorial process that was done through lockdown, um, <laughs> you know. Um, I mean, it may sound like a dumb question, but was that a good thing or a bad thing for you guys? I've, I've heard both versions. Uh, it was both. I think it had benefits and it had drawbacks. And I think, um, I think the, the drawbacks were, I like this. I like this moment here. I'm just I'm watching the. Oh, it's beautiful, and I love all the effort that Shang Tsung goes to uh, explaining how beautiful she is, yeah. and then she gets cut in half shortly yeah. thereafter. I mean, that was something that came a bit late. There's an example of um, of of something we needed to build her up and build up his connection with her, and that's something you, you don't realize that on paper, and then you realize, oh, okay, actually we need to build her up more to make more of that moment later. So it's all about set up and payoff and uh, we needed to set her up better and set up their connection. Um, hey, that's clever. So, I mean, I didn't clock it, but was that line off camera and it was like an ADR ad? Uh, no, we, we, this was, some of this was picked up in additional shooting. So gotcha. it's, I think it's on camera, but some of it is off camera and, you know, some of it you do off and some of it you do on. So how much additional shooting did you do? Cause with a cast this large and, you know, when you were originally shooting in South Australia, it's probably quite difficult to mount those pickups. Yeah, we didn't, uh, it wasn't a huge amount. We, we did it in Sydney um, after, uh, towards the end of what you, uh, 20, 2020. So um, we just, and it was that, um, there was some stage stuff and stuff we did on set, but I, I yeah, it wasn't a huge amount. It was, um, uh, yeah, I'm just trying to think. 
but yeah, you just, you never stop evolving and improving. Like, and we also had the advantage of having some characters with masks on. Yeah. So you so can when just change stop, anything they yeah. say at any time. So it gave us the, you know, this, the dialogue in this scene changed quite a bit from the original because we needed it to serve a better purpose of a new scene of the new introduction of the way we introduced Cabal in that previous scene. So yeah. we wanted to change. I mean, some of it's the same. It talks about, oh, you, you know that, but there was, um, um, yeah, we, we, we changed this because um, you can, <laughs> we, we could, we could. And we also, we wanted to make, we needed to build Cabal up. Um, Cabal needed to be built up and it, this allowed us to do that. So, um, you know, I really, really happy with the way Cabal looks because actually in, yeah. the, game, in the game, he doesn't look that great in my humble opinion. Um, he tends to look a bit like a predator knockoff or something. And, um, but he has those, the angle of the distinctive eyes and the, the, the respirator. And so there were things about it that we, again, we needed, okay, what was the DNA of Cabal and how could we make that to be a really a visually powerful, dirty mongrel version of it? Um, Oh, and and you nailed it, you know, uh, because he 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 fits my memory of that character from the game in exactly yeah. that way that you're talking about. That if you you sort of squint and look at it from across the room, it's like oh, you've captured yeah. captured the essence. The other yeah. kind of fan favorite iconic character that almost every person that's ever heard of Mortal Kombat is is familiar with. We're about to see on screen for the first time uh, in Goro, uh, daunting you know, shooting something like this with a massive character that's twice as tall as a man? Like, how do you even begin? Well, I, I, we struggled a bit. Well, I did. Probably other people didn't. But I, what I struggled with was the whole, the anatomy of forearms was quite difficult for us because it, by its very nature, has a slightly goofy vibe. Um, I don't know why. It, it, so many versions of the design looked like just a torso plopped on someone's shoulders. Right. Uh, because, and, and it was very hard to get away from that. It was very hard to get out from underneath that and just like, okay, why is that? So it was a really long process. And we did a lot of, a lot of Goro designs. Um, and in the end method, the visual effects company in Melbourne, um, we sort of towards the back end of shooting, um, they, they came, they came with a design that just seemed to feel right. And, and he, you know, he's got a, a nobility that we, I wanted and a, and a power that I wanted. And a, I didn't want the forearms to feel kind of goofball. And, um, and it was, it was a really long design R and D process to, to make him feel real and authentic. And it just was trial and error really. Is there any part of you, like when you're in that situation as a director where you just go, but then do we need Goro in this? You know, like uh, there's so many characters in, in the movie already. Like, was there any part of you that's like, look, let's keep it a little more grounded. Goro's the only one that really takes a step away from human biology. You could have argued the case that that's the tonal flag that you're going to plant. Was, did you ever consider it? I never considered getting rid of him. Um, I just thought it was a great design challenge that, because I feel that when you get it right, and I'm not 
professing to say that I got it right every time, but, but the goal is if you can manifest something that someone's seen before in a new, powerful, elevated way, I think there's enormous reward with that. And I think we were doing a lot of that. And that was one of the great joys of, of doing this movie was having the ability to, like Melina, for instance, you know, I didn't want her yeah. with a mask on because there was too many, too many characters with masks. And what ends up happening is you, you cut off your connection, the audience's connection with the characters if you just constantly got masks on everyone's faces all the time. And obviously there were certain ones we, we had to keep. But um, so, no, I, I never thought, for a second, we weren't going to do Goro. I mean, we joked now and again. We're, we're <laughs> Maybe we don't need this guy. Do we really need Goro? No, but it was, <laughs> it was never done. It was never done seriously. Um, it was just it, the, the harder it got, the more the challenge became more of a goal and more satisfying to try and nail it. And it was you really the guys at Method in Melbourne. Those an incredible VFX company, very talented guys. Um, and they they just found the right balance, um, and um, you know worked really well. So um, I want to and- ask about um, the VFX houses, but j- because it was just on screen there, the look of Molina and the performance is so good. You know, like that uh, the idea of taking the mask off and then sort of replacing it with the bloodied mouth to kind of again yeah. kind of reference to that look that we know. Um, yeah, credit to you, sir. It's, it's, it's very well done. Yeah, I um, just, it was just uh, too many masks. It's like, okay, we can't have this. Uh, and also, I thought Cece did a great, what I wanted and what Cece delivered was a real muscularity and a power and, a, and, a, and, a, and this sort of animalistic quality that runs underneath her. I mean, Cece's not like that at all. She's very, yeah, it's kind of fun and bubbly and but she brings this in her audition. She brought this really intense quality to it. Um, and she's incredibly photogenic and has this great combination. And also a bit like Mel here who plays Natara. I mean, Mel's really beautiful, but there's a, there's a menace that she could bring in, that she brought in her, her um, audition. Um, she's in very, very, she really went there and really swung hard with this kind of, slightly unhinged quality which was really great um and both of those guys did a really good job and i think you know i felt a, i felt a bit nervous a little bit perhaps with melina thinking you know melina's such a i probably pushed her away from the clan well we should probably talk about that scene the scene we're watching here for a second but <laughs> oh yes please uh, yeah. um this one took a while to um to design we're talking about the character being cut in half here like yeah, so Carl's hat rather graphically not, and beautifully and horrifically. Yeah, so you know, we I wanted the hat to really do its job well, um, and obviously we needed to have someone have a flawless victory and seem Kung Lao Kung Lao was appropriate. So it 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 was Greg Russo, the writer. He had the the Natara gets cut in half by Kung Lao's hat. I mean, that was there from the get go, um, and he felt that was really important as well, and. So it was just, it was a, a big R&D design job and just blocking that and working it out. You know, we had a few different iterations that took too long and it, you sort of, we were telegraphing what was going to happen. And, and actually it was Richard, the head of the studio actually said, look, I think it should be shorter. We shouldn't, it's feeling too long. And I was like, he was right. You know, it was, it was a really good note. It was a good observation that it sort of, in, in, in a desire to make some, a lot of it, 
it was just lasting too long. And then ultimately we trimmed it down and it becomes, becomes this really powerful moment. Um, and I didn't want to shy away from the moment. We couldn't, we couldn't cut away from it. It had to be on there. Yeah. I mean, it becomes pretty liberating on some level coming in, going into a movie like this. Cause you know, it's an R right? Like everybody's mm. on the same page that, you know, we're going to yeah. go there at different points in the, in the show. And that's the point when you probably go the most there, but was there ever, um, anyone's inclination to, to to not be quite so graphic? No, no, there was that never came up ever. Uh, it was, I mean, the the more the, graphic. Yeah, the, the only time we really talked about it was one of the very early meetings I had with the studio, and it was actually a question from Walt Hamada, and Walt's since gone on to be the president of DC. But Walt was on this; he was at New Line before that, and he asked the question, "How do I feel about the violence?" And I said, well, it's a, it's a key ingredient in Mortal Kombat. But if, if we think that that's all we have to worry about, then I think we've lost. It, we can't ignore it, but it can't be, we can't make it the priority. We have to make the story and the, the authenticity and the beauty and the cinematic scale, that all, that all has to be considered. And, and then the violence can fit in with that. Um, but if we lead with the violence and try and be gratuitous and comedic and dumb and silly about it, then I think I'm not sure that tonal quality, that balance is right. I feel like that's the kind of answer that gives everybody the confidence that you're the right guy to do the job. Yeah. It's the right way to think about it. Um, while we've been talking, we're seeing Cole get his Akana, yeah. uh, which is, you know, there's a, that's a big creative choice for you to, to, to not only decide that, okay, we're going to create a whole new character for the, Mortal Kombat um, universe, and then this is what he's going to look like, and these are going to be his powers and stuff. Like, how many, how long did that take to work out? It took a long time. It took a lot of, uh, and it, it, it never really stopped. We constantly kept wanting to build and build and build and um, make the most of, of, of what, what he becomes and where that comes from. Um, I mean, ultimately, he is a manifestation of the kunai blade is the idea. And if you actually look at those visions he has, you see the kunai blade wrap as in the same way. And it's the same pattern and design as the actual suit. And it wraps when it, when it, when it finally gets it, it sparks out of the bracelet that Emily gives him. And, it, and then it wraps in the same way. So he is really that manifestation. And then he's that. And then the the fire of nether realm is really inside the power of it. And, and whenever he gets hit and whenever he gets beaten down, um, the energy of that traps in there and then that manifests out. So that was the idea within it, but that took a long time. And the guys, we actually had Weta working on this for a while. And that was one of, um, that was there. They came, they worked on, on Cole's Arcana and they've come up with that. And it was, there's some really great guys over at Weta who, did a, they were fantastic to work with. So um, that was that was them. Is there any talk of you know him coming up in future games? Like, is that something that's been discussed? There's like a downloadable extra or something like that. If not, you know, in the main character selection screen. Yeah, I don't know. I, I haven't spoken to the game guys about that. How involved are they? You know, did they up and sell their rights to the this property in the movie world and so Warner Brothers and New Line get to do whatever they want or are they involved through the process of development and production and post? Well, yeah, I think they, I think Ed Boon and John Tobias, the guys who created it, 
sold sold it. I don't know when. I don't really know the history, but they yeah they sold it to Warner Brothers or whoever owned Warner Brothers or Warner Brothers at the time a, a while back, and it was yeah, many years ago. And um, I think they then they work out another Realm Studios and they make the game and they've you know they've really evolved that game into a pretty amazing thing. So. Um, but they they had input, they had an involvement. It was really the studio that dealt with them a lot. I didn't really, I had a, had a couple of conversations with Ed Boone and he was great. He was super helpful um, and a really lovely guy, a very, very humble, genuine guy. Um, for a guy who'd created Mortal Kombat, he was a pretty humble, lovely guy. So uh, he was good. Um, but yeah, it was the studio really did, had most connection with them. Um, and uh, yeah. One thing we haven't talked about because we're watching it with the sound off, which is almost a crime, uh, is the, the music, you know, which mm. going right back to the very opening moments, it's like right out of the gate, it really makes an impression. Um, can you tell us about working with Benjamin Wolfish? Yeah, well, I love Benjamin Wolfish. He's an amazingly uh, talented guy and he's a joy to work with. Um, yeah, the whole experience, it was very hard work for Ben. It was a really, um, working remotely like that was very difficult and made things harder. And, um, but he nailed it and he did an amazing job. And it was really the, he, I've, I've said to everyone in this process that we are we're not changing, we're elevating. So we're taking the DNA of and the fundamentals of what Mortal Kombat is and we're elevating it. And that the music was the same. So... I'd, I'd been thinking about that when I, just before I met Ben and, and then Ben was of the same thought. He felt that obviously we need to keep the, the melody of that original song. And in the first meeting I had with him before we, he was even signed on because he'd done a lot, he's done a lot of movies with New Line, so they know him really well. And I've always loved his, his work and I independently of, uh, no one said to me, oh, I should work with Ben. It was just like, oh, I'd want to work with Ben. I said, great, we love Ben. So it was, it worked out really well. So I had this meeting and in that meeting, I thought I was going to have to convince Ben to come onto the movie and he had done a demo and he'd done a demo of elevating the song to this orchestral cinematic, beautiful piece and just blew my mind. So that acts, that demo actually helped me get people, helped them understand the tone of what we're doing and it helped me sign actors and it helped me get these really good actors on the movie. So it was a really fundamental, uh, tool for me to help communicate what I was talking about. So he was on the project, you know, from oh, the yeah. very early days, yeah. obviously you're talking about bringing in talent. Did he start yeah. writing more than just that demo at that point? Or does he sort of hold off until he's seeing cuts then to take it further? Yeah, he, he did that. And he, pro I think he did a few other things and then he waited. He was busy doing the invisible man um, worth watching just for the, for the music alone. I mean, that's, that's a great, yeah. film. that's such a good film. So good. Um, and um, he, uh, yeah. And then once we got cracking, um, you know, I was in LA on, in March, 2020, just before the pandemic hit. And I went to his studio and we, we sort of went through the film and the rough cut, I'd brought the rough cut to, to the studio. And we talked about that. And then I, we went through it together in his studio. And that was, that was it. That was the last time I sat with him in a room and I haven't seen him in person since then. So uh, it's all been done remotely. Wow, that's crazy. Uh, yeah, I know it's wild. Um, the other key collaborator that we haven't talked about yet is Jermaine McMicking. Yeah. 
uh, another Aussie lad. How yeah. did you, and had you worked with Jermaine before? No, I hadn't, but I'd wanted to um, because he'd done some commercials that I'd seen that I was thought were just beautiful. And um, I was looking around to, once we knew we were shooting in Australia, then a certain amount of the crew had to be Australian and uh, to get in, to get the, uh, you know, incentive you have to do that and so which is you know in australia there's a lot of really good crew so that was really no no drama it was just a matter of okay who's it going to be and i was talking to uh to um michael ritchie at revolver who's the production company i'm with uh for commercials in sydney and i said you know i was talking to him about it because he's michael's got great taste he, he knows everyone and he's got a really good understanding of of crew and works with the best people and I, I was talking to about the DP and, and, you know, there's obvious names and, you know, Jermaine is, is very highly regarded here. And he said, Oh, you, you will love Jermaine. You should talk to Jermaine. He's fantastic. So I did. And I, um, and then I looked at some of the stuff he'd done. He'd done true detective three and he'd done um, top of the lake and, and done a couple of really interesting films that looked really beautiful. And I wanted that sensitivity and that beauty and that cinematic elegance to come through to mix with the you know we're looking at a head splat right now to mix with the head splats <laughs> and so forth. I thought that was really important so um and remains just, the guy to capture the the poetry and elegance of a, yeah. a shattering brainstem correct but he was wonderful and he loved it and he got right into it and he thought I was joking when I first rang him he, he thought I was some sort of prank call well it sounds like uh, he owes Michael Ritchie a commission <laughs> yeah nice um he's great he's a wonderful wonderful man and did an amazing job on this i'm so pleased with it it's a big i mean jermaine's done a lot of work low commercials you mentioned you know true detective and top of the lake but mortal kombat something else again you know in terms of the size of the camera team that you must have had running at all times like um was it i mean you mentioned three cameras before were you pretty much always running three cameras uh yeah a lot of the time um not always, but but quite a lot of the time. This is my favourite fight in the movie, by the way. We're watching Kano and Sonya fight in her uh, trailer, and I, I love the fact that it that it the fight sort of culminates in the toilet with toilet water. You know, Kano's head gets smashed into the toilet, and this was what we wanted the fights each to have a, their own style within this authentic approach to everything, but. So this one is this very probably the most dirty mongrel fight that there is, and it becomes, um, and I love that about it. I just I like that it's it's Sonya being inventive and smart to outwit Kano with his laser, and and then it just turns into this brawl, and and him getting killed by the gnome was, um, you know, was sweet justice for Kano. That's, so that's uh, so perfect. I mean, and it got such a response at, at the premiere. Yeah, that, that was a good laugh, wasn't it? It's great. Did, was that threaded through the script or was that one of those sort of golden opportunities that presented itself? Like, you know, uh, Josh spat at the end of the earlier scene when you filmed it and you thought, oh, wouldn't it be funny if he was spitting on something? And then you go, oh, wait, couldn't we use that gnome in the end of the fight scene? Or was that really something that was on the page? No, that was on the page. That was out of the brain of Greg Russo, the writer. Uh, that was his idea and um, it worked beautifully. Um, yeah, I think he liked the idea that that scumbag um, Kano, who's been a prick the whole movie, needed a seriously serious comeuppance, and um, 
there's something belittling about that, which I think is really important. Uh, the just desserts. It's, it's, yeah. it's perfect. So Greg, is, has he been on this project for a long time? I'm sure that the, the development history of something like this goes back quite a way, even before you signed on. Has it really been his baby from, from the get-go? Well, there were a couple of writers to begin with, um, but I never knew any other writers. He's the only writer I've known on the film. Um, and um, so he came on before me, I think maybe a year before me, I think. Um, can't remember exactly, but it, it wasn't just five minutes. It was a fair while. And um, he reworked the script quite a bit from where they'd had it. And then, um, then he and I worked together on it and with the studio and, and, and developed it um, further. But, is um, he a, a real fan of the franchise? Because somebody oh, somebody's giving you the inside scoop here, like because there are a lot of beautiful little nods throughout, you know, in ways big and small, down to movements in the choreography that reference actual special moves in the game. Uh, you know, the idea you said before that we have to get a flawless victory in there and fatality and like, um, yeah, somebody really knows the ins. I mean, actually, we talked about it previously, but not on air. That yeah. great gag with Kano sort of sweeping the leg repeatedly yeah. and that being a mechanic that players in the game used to do and was considered a dirty trick. Like, it's, it, there's a lot of really smart meta and, uh, uh, you know, reverential references throughout this. Somebody knows what's going on in Mortal Kombat. Is it Greg? Yeah, so it Greg was the platform and then and then it just built from there. So it just gets layered and layered and that's what the process is. You just never stop adding and layering and layering. And my assistant Vic Newton it plays Mortal Kombat just so much. She knows it back to front. So there were a lot of things you know I I would need to sort of check and say does this make sense for sub-zero is this right or is this wrong or you know so there was a it never stopped it was a this it's like i was walking through a minefield daily because you could just get what the context of something just slightly wrong and it's totally wrong and so it was it was constantly talked about all the time and then there were a lot of people on set a lot of people in the concept art team they knew a lot about it and I, I would suss them out and make sure they knew what they're talking about before I listened to them. You know, it's not like I was just like, oh, anyone can. But, um, but yeah, we, we I sort of, I think that's what, as a director, you, you assess people and you suss people out. Well, certainly I do and see what they're, see what they're like. And you, you really hire people for their tastes. And then a lot of people I don't hire the keys, I hire the keys and then the keys hire their team. And I suss people out all the time and think, you know, and then, then they, come up with good ideas so those ideas are just constantly being layered all the time ideas come from the studio guys i you know it's so it's it's just a it's a collaborative effort all the way and never stops uh, we're back now in uh, what's become sort of sub-zero's den in a way i mean yeah. it might have formerly been coals but sub-zero's made it his own with a thick yeah. layer of ice on everything i mean this is one of the most beautiful and memorable sets in the movie and, and we were talking about it earlier on uh and if I'm remembering and understanding correctly, like, does that mean that all of the ice that we're seeing in the backgrounds at least is practical in these scenes? Yeah. Yeah. Everything in, everything in there, all the ice that doesn't move is practical. All of that is That's real. amazing. Yeah. And I'm particularly amazed by the ice on the chain link fence. Yeah. Well, so that, that was, so Naaman, the production designer built a gigantic machine that dipped the chain link fence into the ice material 
and then pulled it out and it would dry and then it rotated around and dried and that's how he got it on there. Wow. Yeah, oh, it's unreal. Welcome to so, Hollywood. That's, yeah, that's some real exactly. Hollywood filmmaking right there. Yeah, so all of that stuff, everything you're seeing in that whole shot here, the fan, everything, it's all in camera. That's all real. Um, and yeah, everything. I think we extended a little bit just at the... But then obviously, and the sword's real. I was um, about to ask. Yeah, not sword, enhanced yeah. either? Uh, not not in some of the shots. It's just straight up. And then obviously where he grows it, it's real. But what, <laughs> um, what, we, what I needed to do is I wanted to make the real ice so that then the VFX companies could be informed by what the ice is going to look like. And it looks very elemental. I kept saying... A lot of people's powers in this are very elemental. They're very real. It's lightning, it's fire, it's ice. They're real things. So let's make them feel as real as possible. Um, and like here. So then the VFX with Rising Sun did this. Oh, yeah. It's beautiful, right? It's just uh, it's stunning. It's I, I, you know, I'm going to go out on a limb and say, far and away, the best ice I've ever seen in a movie. Um, well, we looked at a lot of movie ice. We did a lot of research and most of it's terrible. Yeah, no, there's something about it. Like, it really looks, I mean, God, I don't know how much, how many more minutes of this podcast I can spend talking about <laughs> ice. I'm going to get slammed on the social media about it. But yeah, no, it looks wet and hard and reflective and yeah. it looks cold, you know? That's <laughs> what ice is meant to do. But let's talk about something else because something yeah. fairly major is happening here around the ice. And it is the uh, the head-to-head final, much anticipated showdown between Scorpion in his final form and Sub-Zero. And holy crap, does it really deliver yeah. not just the the bombastic action, but his arrival and the score that accompanies that moment and the classic line. Um, tell us a little bit about kind of your approach to this whole final sequence and in particular, the sort of reveal and depiction of, of Scorpion. Well, the, the Scorpion was a, uh, took a lot, of, a lot of time to get right. And there was a nobility in him that it was really important to me and it was the detail and layering on everyone's costume was really important. And, and Scorpion's is, is almost probably the most detailed and layered because I felt like that when we were, had the shallow depth of field and the, these lenses, uh, you need detail and information to drop out of focus to make it feel embedded and real. And that tarnished quality to the armor and so forth just makes it feel lived in and not too clean and i didn't want anything to be clean if it's lived in it feels like it's not like yeah the dude came from hell he was wearing yeah, the same thing right. in hell yeah exactly it probably smells a bit under there you know so <laughs> um so that was a and and a lot of it a lot of what happens in this fight um were ideas that joe had with the stunt guys it was the ideas the stunt guys but it was also ideas we had when we were creating the the opening fight and this so it's set up and payoffs a, a lot of that and um and it was we knew how important a sub-zero and scorpion fight was and their rivalry in the in in the story so it had to be that and then this is sort of where families combine and the bloodline um you know for me the mortal combat uses blood a lot so i thought okay what's another way we we talk about blood and that's blood and bloodline and family. So this is where the, the bloodline sort of come together and, and battle the, the true evil in this, in this film, which is really Sub-Zero and uh, Shang's the, the puppet master, but Subs is really the, the, the engine of it. And um, this is where, and 
you know, I, I wanted to see Joe's face. So I said, we've got to get his mask off him. And that's where he sort of strips back to just being back to Bihan again and just back to the, and that's why all the, all the armor comes off because, you know, it's just sort of just going back to the raw elemental Bihan of the beginning. And, mano, uh, mano. Yeah, exactly. Um, and he just gets wet, ground down and, you know, it took two of them to take him out. So I'm, I'm sure Scorpion probably could have done the job on him on his own anyway, but... Uh, he's just letting but, his uh, grandkid feel good. Yeah, exactly, you know. Um, but it... Um, was it, there ever debate about, like, when the, the get over here line would be dropped and, you know, the exact moment of his appearance and would that always be tied to the sort of full flourish of the score? Like, was that something that was in your mind from the very earliest days or is that one of those things that sort of built up in layers like you were talking about? Uh, that was there pretty early, but what was originally the, the dun, 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 that part was going to come, uh, that was always meant to come as we saw him, but actually when you watch the film, it comes before it's sort of a precursor yeah, to him. Yeah. So, and we did that on the mixed stage um, because we felt like we just needed to tear it up a little better. Um, and but yeah that was that was something that and the get over here it needed to sound like the game but it had to be hero's voice which it is so hero did a lot of versions of it um and then we tweaked it um afterwards and then it became the what it is so um and yeah and then more amazing vfx another incredible shot is that rising sun as well yeah that's rising sun yeah the, you, you mentioned Method, you mentioned Rising Sun, both of which are, are based here in Australia. Uh, is it exclusively Australian VFX houses? Uh, yeah. Um, yeah, it was. Um, there oh, were, kudos uh, to the Aussies. Yeah, and um, Mr. X is a company in Adelaide that did did quite a bit of stuff. They did Jax's arms and that. I mean, you know how good they look. So yeah, they were amazing too. So yeah, everyone really nailed it. Everyone delivered. Um and um, yeah, it was great. As we're heading towards the end of the the movie, and we've sort of seen the full roster of anyone that's going to appear in this one, and maybe start to tease who might appear in a in a subsequent instalment. Like, were there other characters that you considered including, or other characters that you maybe filmed a fight scene with that that dropped out? No one, no one was filmed and dropped out. Um, we for a while there in the script, Rain was in it, but. He was just going to be too expensive for doing little more than just a, a fight. Uh, he didn't drive the story forward. There was no material, real substantial gain for the for the amount it was going to cost. So he went away. But um, this was the set that I that was in the script when I got it. Um, but there's obviously a lot of opportunities in the in the sequel. Um, for I think female representation needs to be rebalanced. I think we could do with some more female characters, and that's something that's really important to me going forward. Yeah. Um, obviously, Johnny Cage gets teed up. It would be a little rude if we didn't. <laughs> that would the... be an unexpected twist in the first <laughs> moments of the second film. That would, they're like, yeah. oh, you know what, actually, Johnny? Nah. Yeah. Nah, thanks. Uh, that would be unfair. You passed your prime. Yeah. Uh, have you, I mean, I'm, I'm sure you can only say as much as you can say, but have you started thinking about talking about or working on the sequel? Uh, it's, there's not much to say because it, there's nothing's really been, I mean, I have, I have ideas and thoughts, 
uh, and I know where I want it to go. I, obviously, I can't say anything at the moment, but um, but it's very early days. It's it's embryonic in our even thinking about it. So it's um, you know the dust is just settling on this really, um, and then we'll. Yeah, I'm not even sure it's it's um it's settling because this thing is still out there in the world and moving yeah. and shaking. It was number one at the worldwide box office. Uh, it, it, it because of the pandemic, it was also simultaneously on HBO Max, and I, it was in theaters here in Australia where I saw it, and 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 now is available on streaming. So this is very much a a movie of the moment still. Can you tell us what that experience has been like? You know, working on a movie before a pandemic through a pandemic and then releasing one during a pandemic um well it actually worked quite smoothly because we'd gotten 95 percent of it shot out before the pandemic i mean it, it was doing the doing the uh, and being in australia it allowed us to do a lot so um and there's they were looking at johnny cage poster there just worth saying that the actor who plays the um who plays the uh the ref in this film the guy called david field is an incredible australian actor who i've done a commercial with in the past and we became quite good mates and he was someone i always knew that i wanted to put him put in the put in my first movie whatever it is and when i when this well i was working out and then we knew we were going to shoot in australia i i contacted him i said look david i've got a role that's way below your your abilities and your pay grade but would you do it and he's being the delightful human being that he is, he said, yeah, no worries, mate. I'll come down. He said, happy to be a glorified extra for you, mate. So, <laughs> so it's worth what, if anyone's listening to this, it's worth having a look at uh, Chopper, which is a great, a, oh, an amazing yeah. Australian film. And, and David has an incredible role in that film. And I would just get everyone to go and look at David Field's work through the years. And he's an extraordinary actor. Um, and I felt very lucky to have him, you know. Um, this credit sequence is worth talking about here too, because these amazing graphic designers in Adelaide, uh, the Pierce brothers, uh, they, uh, I got them in to work on the design, some design work in there. And they were so good. I just kept them on and they've done, they did all the marketing. They did all the logo work. They did oh, really? The yeah. Wow. Done everything. And um, they did this, they did the uh, title design here at the end and, I wanted something that felt very graphic and very bold and, and not trying to be CGI and too fruity. And, you know, it was, it had to have the same sort of elegant mongrel quality. Um, it needed to be beautiful, but I wanted it to have some um, power to it. And those guys did this and it was really just sort of another interpretation of, of a graphic way of creating blood really and seeing how that might manifest and, these guys did this. This was very light, right at the last minute, and um, these guys are amazing. So they'll work on every single film I ever do. That's um, stunning. Yeah. And so is the phrase "elegant, elegant mongrel." I love that. <laughs> I'm going to take that away, if nothing else. Um, yeah. Well, I think you've created an elegant mongrel masterpiece here, um, and certainly um, at last made a great video game movie. I mean, I'm sure you don't want to reduce down to that, but you know, for those of us who are fans of video games and have been waiting a long time for somebody to treat the source material with some reverence uh, and then plus it through the process of execution because films are inherently their own thing. Uh, this has been so gratifying to see this sort of finally play out on screens and it's been gratifying to get the chance to talk to you about it. So thank you so much for, for making the time.
Oh, absolute pleasure, Grant. Absolute pleasure. It's, it's, you know, there's so much detail and so every shot is so dense with so many stories. And as things were going by, I was, as we were chatting about one thing, I thought, oh, should be probably mentioning that. But well, please, if there's anything left unsaid, now is the time. We have a long credit roll where you could, yeah. you could fill us in. <laughs> I don't really remember what I was, you know, it was just more like, wow, that, you know, how something was blocked or what, what the problems were on that day. And, you know, those sorts of things. There's so much to it. Um, it was such a joyous experience making it actually. It was it was tough at times, but it was a it was a really good, wonderful experience with an amazing crew, really. That that if you look at the crew here, they all these people, just every single person on this on this crew list was was so instrumental to so much of it. Like a camera operator Jason Elson. Okay, that guy. There's a great shot when when Kano and Je- uh and Sonia are fighting in the desert and it's this beautiful rotating top shot. And that was Jason's idea. He said, Hey, I've got an idea. Can I show you something? I was like, yeah, right. Let's have a look. Show me. So we're out in the desert and we're out there. And he said, let's have a look at this. Cause he was watching the blocking of the fight and we were looking at it and he said, I think I've got an idea. So he just, you know, got the guys to take the camera up, do this. And he said, right. Okay. And three, two, one. And we did a rehearsal and it just looked amazing. And you know, that's, that's, you, and the production coordinator, Carly Maple, right? Carly is the person who found the Pierce brothers, the design company, Frame Creative, for me to work with. And so she's instrumental. So every single person on this list, Jacob McIntyre, the supervising location manager, and all those location scouts, Lauren, Sharon, Gavin, and Mark, were so important to finding all those amazing, beautiful locations that make the film look so great. So, um, you know, it's when you see these credits, everyone, everyone matters. Otherwise you wouldn't, you wouldn't hire them. You know, you're always trying to do things as cheaply and as efficiently as possible. So um, it's, it's nice to, you know, I love looking through the credits because I, you see all the people that really made the difference. Key grip, Josh Hamill. I mean, Josh is the most elegant, lovely guy. Uh, who you may have worked with. I'm not sure whether you've worked with Josh, but he's fantastic. It's, uh, it, you know, it's touching to hear you, you know, single people out because uh, there is a tendency to just see these names as a anonymous scroll uh, oh. and, and one sort of big block, but it's true. Like every single person that's in a credit role has contributed, right? And, and it wouldn't be the same movie if you had a different mix of people. Oh, completely. I mean, so much of this film is just a sheer individual craft that someone brings to to the movie but who uh, did you hate simon tell tell us who <laughs> who is that one person that's on this credit roll that you're like oh steven there's, there's no one i don't know <laughs> steven wouldn't have made it through the production he'd have got fired pretty early on yeah and like the storyboard artists those guys greg david anthony and Nan, they were guys from adelaide and i'd worked with greg before he's an amazing animator an illustrator and those guys came and did all the storyboards and we just worked together and they were in a room all together just smashing them out and we just it was a just a joyous experience of making the putting the film up and we had a, all the boards of the whole film just down one corridor of the pre-production office and i could stand there i just needed to look at it and just and, and suss it and sort of feel it and feel the rhythm of it and um they were great yeah. Well, this this has been great. So, you know, as I said before, I really appreciate the time. Before we let you go, is there um, 
any social media that you might like to spruik or, or a place that people can find you know you and stay up to date on the things that you're working on? Um, I'm not really a big social media guy. Um, I have an Instagram account that I I forget about from time to time, and then I'll, I'll <laughs> too busy think, oh, making things. Uh, and then I, I just I find that um, yeah, I'm not really drawn to to shooting the mouth off or saying stuff. You know, I just like. So, but yeah, I guess my Instagram account, you can look at pictures now and again when I, when I, I well, I've already start... teased a few upcoming drops. You said there were a few things you were going to post. People are going to yeah. be keeping an eye out. Yeah. So now um, I'll, I'll put some stuff out there that, that I think might be interesting. It's, it's primarily for people who are in the, you know, who are interested in film and, and like the process. I sort of feel like that might be of value rather than, you know, pictures of my pet dog or something. Yeah. Well, you know, it sounds like you just described our, our dear listeners. Uh, and so they too are very thankful for you uh, coming on the show today. Thank you, mate. We hope to have you back with Mortal Kombat 2 through 75 or however many of these <laughs> are going to get made. Well, we'll see. But yeah, I'd be happy to come back anytime, mate. It was great chatting. Thank you, mate. Oh, I could I could watch those credits roll for hours with Simon's commentary. It's, that's really, really touching. It could be a whole other podcast, Dave. We could have a separate podcast with just directors commentating credits. We could call it the credit cast. Oh, the, the, the credit cast gratitude edition. There we go. You know, like making a movie is really, really a team sport, much like uh, making a podcast grant. Uh, yeah, I mean, yeah, I guess, you know, that, look, every team sport has a captain. I'm kind of the captain of this, this podcast. <laughs> well, You're like the goalkeeper. And I'm like, you know, the, I don't know sports. I can't really stretch this metaphor through to its final destination. Yeah. A home well, run? <laughs> touchdown? Don't get it right? Yeah, great. Bring in the sports ball with nomenclature. Uh, yeah. There you go. Well, that is it. That is our show. Thanks again to Simon. And thanks to all of our fans listening along. Until next week, you can find me on Instagram at Grant Spitore. And I'm at Is That You Dave. The show has its own Instagram at The Commentary Cast where you can feel free to stop by, drop a comment or suggest other films we should feature. Tell us your favourite character on Mortal Kombat. Or your favourite finishing move. Oh, yeah, come on, let's Ooh, get that. Yeah. Brutality. Brutalities. Oh. Yeah. Animality. Friendship. I just finished you off with a friendship a minute ago, Dave. <laughs> yeah, okay. Well, if you enjoyed the show, be sure to take a moment to subscribe on Apple Podcasts, Spotify or wherever you download your quality podcasts and feel free to drop us a review. We'll be back again very soon with another another special guest. I'd say so soon as about a week from now, we'll drop another one of these. We're nothing if not regular. And so until next time, insert catchphrase here. Insert catchphrase here.